I'll read just one verse. And this will be the last week that we spend in the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 41. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. These are the words of our Lord and our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for all that we've heard so far. We thank You for Your Word. Lord, we believe that Your Word is powerful. And Lord, even as we sit and as we hear it, we can feel the flesh within us straining because when light comes and bears upon darkness, it's difficult to bear. Lord, we believe and we ask that You would help our unbelief. Help us during this time to love Your Word, to trust Your Word, to be fed by Your Word. Holy Spirit, feed us. Give illumination and understanding. Apart from Your work in us, we are blind and deaf to anything that Your Word would say. But by Your work, Holy Spirit, these are words of life to us. So, so do that work for us, please. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew begins this section that I've been calling the Gethsemane moment by saying, Then Jesus went with them into a place called Gethsemane. You'll remember that word means olive press. Gethsemane. Luke twenty two thirty nine 39 says that He came out that is out of the city of Jerusalem, and went, as was His custom, to the Mount of Olives. And John tells us in John 18 and verse 2, Judas, who betrayed Him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with His disciples. We've said week after week after week that based on these several verses, it is assumed that at least during Passion Week, this final week of the life of the Lord Jesus, it was His normal routine every evening to go out to Gethsemane to use this garden as a place of rest and prayer with His disciples. And we've also said that this, this resort into Gethsemane was not a knee-jerk reaction. Jesus wasn't going to go somewhere else, and all of a sudden he realized, well, I better go and pray. The man Jesus, throughout his ministry, is and was preeminently a man of personal private prayer. And I want to show you that. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 35, it says, "...and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed." Now, if you look in the context, he's coming out of a long day of ministry. He's going into another long day of ministry. And he doesn't hit snooze and say, well, I, you know, I worked hard yesterday. I really, it would be beneficial for me to give my body some rest and to really get ready for the day. He doesn't do that. He gets up early and he goes off by himself to pray before daylight. Mark chapter 6 and verse 46 says, After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Again, 
After a long day of ministry, he feeds the 5,000. Remember, the disciples said, send them to go buy food. And he says, well, it's already late. It's been a long day already. He feeds 5,000 people. We can imagine how long that would take. He finishes that day. It says, after, taking leave of, after he had taken leave of them, the disciples and the people, following this account, he walks to the disciples on water and calms the storm. And in between all of that, he went up on a mountain to pray. And you can, again, you can look at that. He spent a long time in prayer, many hours in prayer. In Luke chapter 5, a text we've looked at already, verse 15 and 16, great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So notice the contrast. The people are coming to Him. They want to be healed by Him. They want to be taught by Him in the midst of all of this bustling ministry. They want to get to Him, but in contrast to that, He would withdraw. The language is present. He, he was withdrawing. It was common for Jesus to be slipping away from the people for prayer. In Luke chapter, Luke chapter 6 and verse 12, In these days He went out to the mountain to pray, and all night... He continued in prayer to God. That passage comes just before he chooses his twelve disciples, including Peter, who would deny three times that he knows him, but then would go on to write the two epistles of Peter, including John, who would write the Gospel of John, the three epistles of John, the Revelation of John, including Matthew, who we learned last Lord's Day, was a tax collector, who would then write the Gospel of Matthew, James, who would write the Epistle of James, and also Judas Iscariot, who would betray him to death. Before making that selection official, Jesus continued all night in prayer to God. Luke chapter 9 and verse 18, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. This is just before he asks, But who do you say that I am? And Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Just before that, Jesus was praying. And Peter speaks forth that revelation that he received from God. Luke 9, 28, He took with him Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Again, and as he's praying, he was transfigured before them during a moment of prayer. Luke 11 and verse 1, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. So we learned that the prayer life of Jesus was was subject to their inquiry. These were Jewish men. It wasn't like they didn't know what prayer was. It wasn't as if they had never heard of prayer. They were well schooled in prayer and, and systems and forms and structures of prayer. But there was something about the way Jesus prayed and the fact that they were followers of His that led them to say, we want to pray like you pray. Amen. John's disciples, they pray like he prays, but we want to pray like you pray. And so they asked, teach us to pray. Luke eleven forty one and 42, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, this is John 11, sorry, John 11, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Now, we don't have recorded that prayer that was just prayed, but we do have this, Jesus thanking the Father that he had heard his prayer. He says, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Now, we don't have the prayer again. We do have Jesus saying, I thank you that you've heard my prayer. And then Jesus turns and raises Lazarus from the dead. 
Luke 23, 46, Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. God incarnate, hanging on the cross, having just bore the righteous wrath of His Father for sins, having just been crushed under that wrath, before undergoing human death, where His body and His soul would separate just like when we die. Before doing that, He prays. And here it's, not, it's no longer, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And He dies. He gives up His Spirit. He prays. The point that I want you to see there is that Jesus was a man who was in constant communion with God. Gethsemane was not an aberration in His practice. It wasn't strange for Him. His resort to Gethsemane was simply another display of His own time-tested and proven habitual method for obtaining grace in times of need. Jesus does not pray here just because prayer's good. He's not praying here just because he misses his Father and he wants to catch up and see how things are going in heaven. Jesus is praying here because he needed it. Jesus needed to pray. It was regular, private communion with God in prayer and the spiritual aid and power that flowed from that communion which gave Jesus the strength to carry out and fulfill His earthly ministry here, even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He was a man, like we are, without sin. And so He prays because He needs to pray. Now we've seen that Jesus is is here in Gethsemane, he's receiving a clear revelation, a clear sight, a better understanding of what it is he's about to suffer on the cross at the hand of his Father. You can imagine Jesus is looking into this cup and, and he, he was there, the Son of God was there when the door of the ark opened and saw humanity's carcasses littering the earth. The Son of God knew the wrath of God in the flood. The Son of God was there when the earth opened up and swallowed those of Korah's rebellion. The, earth, the, the Son of God will be there when the mighty men of the earth cry out for the rocks to crush them and, and earth and sky will flee from His presence. All of those are just little snippets, little glimpses, snapshots of the cup that He's looking at. That it's about to be poured out upon Him and He's about to put to His own mouth in full force. All of that. He's looking at that and out of obedience to His Father and love to His church, He doesn't push it away, but He says, Father, give me the strength to persevere. And His hand was not forced. He's praying to be able to put that cup to His mouth willingly. He's come to Gethsemane for that purpose, the purpose of prayer. You'll remember that this side of the cup has produced in him this sorrow that leads to specific prayers. We learn from Hebrews 5 that he's praying to the one who was able to save him from death. I believe not only here in Gethsemane, where he's, he's sorrowful unto death, but also to the cross. We say, but he died at the cross. You're right. But the Holy One did not see corruption. He's praying that the Father would not let him ultimately succumb to the, the fullness of death. He prays. Now why does that sight produce this sorrow leading to these specific prayers? Because as a man, he is in 
true fear. He fears what he's about to drink. And as perfect and holy man, he is utterly resigned to the will of his Father. And so he prays, Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is being made aware of the fullness of divine wrath that he must suffer as a man in order to finally and formally secure the salvation of his people. And the sight of what is about to happen sends him into a state of shock and sorrow, the likes of which no man has ever known, to the point where he sweats drops of blood. Out of fear for what's about to happen, out of utter self-resignation to his Father, he prays that he would not succumb to the real temptation to shrink back in fear. But he would be overwhelmed by the throes of death. He prays that he would be given the strength by the Spirit to press on in full obedience as a man in order to save his people. And it is, as we've been focusing these weeks, it is a man. When you read through the Garden of Gethsemane, it's a man that you see on the ground there. It's a man who was tempted at all points like we are, just without sin, without the stain of sin, without the shadow of a sinful thought or deed ever passing through his mind, ever, ever flowing from his hands. A man who had to learn to obey his father through suffering and trials just like this throughout his whole life, all of them culminating in this one. And he's crying out to his father for the grace to continue. Now to use the, a very pitiful illustration, this private communion with God is like Jesus' gas station. Whenever he's, he's worked, whenever he needs to refuel, to replenish, he's, he's off in prayer. He's communing with his God. And so not only should we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, but we should learn from Jesus the Nazarene. We are men. What he's doing, we have to do. The tools that are at his disposal are the tools at our disposal. And what he's trying to teach his disciples in verse 41, and what they failed to learn here, they learned it later, but what they failed to learn here, we should learn. A fool does not learn from the mistakes of others. A smart man will learn from his, or I should say a fool does not learn from his own mistakes. A smart man will learn from his mistakes, but a wise man learns from the mistakes of others. If we see what he's teaching his disciples and we see that they failed the test, we shouldn't say, well, they failed, they were fine. If I fail, I'll be fine. We should learn this lesson. So, I want to open up this verse, verse 41, in a way that I want, to be, I want it to be helpful in two ways. First, I want you to see what he's saying and what he's teaching. But I also want to teach it in such a way that helps you learn how to read and study your Bible. So, the headings that I've given here are just straightforward labels of what's happening in the text. Notice first, this is Matthew 26, 41, verse, first, first thing that we see is a twofold imperative. A twofold imperative. An imperative is a command. An imperative tells somebody what to do with the expectation that they will obey. That's an imperative. This is an imperative, but I'm calling it a twofold imperative. It's like a coin. There are two sides. It's, it could be one singular command, but there are two sides to it. And Jesus gives it to Peter and James and John. Notice what he says. Watch 
and pray. Twofold command. Watch, pray. That word watch is the same word that's used in all of the synoptic versions of Jesus' commands in the Olivet Discourse when He said, stay awake. It means to be mentally alert, to have your mind engaged. To, to engage your mind, you have to take in information. The things that are going on around you, your surroundings. To be alert, the mind has to properly assess and compare and order information so that you are consciously aware, not only of what's happening around you, but what has happened and what might happen. And what all of that means for you. That's what it means to be consciously aware. Soberly, consciously, actively, mentally engaged with reality, both externally and internally. What's happening outside of me? What's happening inside of me? And what does all of that mean for me? That's what it means to be watching. It means to be alert, to be aware, to be cognizant, to be sensible and cautious Watch. The other half of the imperative, pray. That word means to petition God, to make requests of God, to ask God for something, to ask God to do something. And these two things go together. Watching will produce praying. Praying will flow from your watching. But your prayer, for it to be true prayer, it requires that you are watchful. Prayer takes as its subject all of the information that you gathered while you were watching. So here's the idea. Jesus is commanding His disciples to use their minds in sober, conscious, active engagement with reality, both externally and internally, and to use that information as fuel for personal prayers to God. Asking God to act and to give according to what they perceive is the need of the hour. A twofold imperative. Watch and pray. Secondly, there's a singular objective. A singular Objective. The objective is the goal in mind. It's what we're shooting for. And the idea here is that obeying the imperative will produce the outcome which follows. The imperative, watch and pray. The objective, that you may not enter into temptation. The objective will be achieved when you obey the imperative. That's what he's saying. So to put it simply, watching and praying has as its objective, as its aim, as its goal, not entering into temptation or avoiding the entrance into temptation. Follow me? Temptation. What is that? Well, this, this word is used throughout the New Testament for temptation or forms of this word for temptation, but also for trials and tests of all kinds. One event, one circumstance could be both a temptation and a trial. It could be a temptation for you to sin when it draws out the lusts of your flesh and your sinful nature. But it might be the, the same circumstance could be used by God to prove and strengthen your faith. 
So Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The same phrase that was used when he says, enter into the joy of your master. To go from outside to inside and experience what's happening inside. Now, to avoid entering into temptation can't mean absolutely that no temptation ever arises because we don't have control over when a circumstance is tempting or not tempting. Sometimes we can avoid tempting circumstances. Other times we cannot avoid tempting circumstances. James says in James 1-2, "...count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds." That word trials is another form of the same word. He says, count it a joy when that happens, because if the idea is if you face it properly, it will produce a steadfastness of faith. So the idea of entering into temptation, I believe, is, is giving in to the temptation and committing sin. James again, James 1 says, each person is tempted, just a different form of the same word, when he's lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire when it gives birth, or when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Same, same circumstances can be both a temptation and a trial. Our Lord is commanding these men, watch and pray so that as temptation presents itself, it would not be an occasion for sin. It would be an occasion for your faith to be strengthened. You don't want to enter into it and, and commit the sin. Now what's their temptation here? We've already seen it. In verse 31, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. They denied it, remember. Peter says, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. We'll never fall away. They confess their strong allegiance unto death. As we've seen last Lord's Day evening, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And those yous are plural. Simon, this is how we would say it. Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have y'all that he might sift you all like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Satan has requested that he might prove that these men are hypocrites in all of their bold claims. He's asking, let me show you, let me show you, just like we heard, just with, like with Job, I'll show you what these men are made of. And all of the events following Judas's entrance into Gethsemane will be the occasion on which their true loyalty will be put to the test. It's not when they stand up and say, we would never deny you. That's not the test. The test is when Judas comes with an army behind him. Jesus commands them, be watchful and be praying so that you will not sin. Now notice at this point that according to Jesus, watching and praying will provide what you need to persevere through temptation without sin. That's what he's saying. So while their master is undergoing his most severe trial, they have been requested of by Satan to go through their most severe trial. So we have a twofold imperative. We have a singular objective that they may not enter into temptation. And then thirdly, we have a timeless indicative. A timeless indicative. An indicative is a statement of fact. 
It is an assertion of truth. An indicative does not on the surface command or prohibit anything. Now there may be some implications, but it does not on the surface. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, that doesn't mean He didn't say, go be salt. He said, you are salt. If you're not salt, you're not a Christian. You are the light of the world. Don't go try to be light. You are the light. And then He says, let your light so shine before men, etc., etc. It's imperatives. He's simply stating truth here. So here's the truth. A timeless truth for all believers. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now what does that mean? Remember when we talked about depravity, every human being is by nature body and soul or body and spirit. You have your spirit which is the immaterial part of you, your moral faculties, your intellect, your affections, your heart. Then you have the flesh, the material part of you, the fleshly body. Now in Scripture, oftentimes that word flesh is used for all of that, just as a human being. Like when Paul said to the Philippians, if for, it would be better for, for you if I remain in the flesh with you. He's not saying that he would remain sinful or wicked, but it would just remain in, on this earth in a physical body. Sometimes the flesh is wicked. Sometimes it's just neutral for a human being in the natural state, a natural person. For the regenerate person who is a new creature in Christ, remember, there is a new work of divine grace that has been implanted in the heart. You're a new creature. And that new work influences and empowers our spirit while what we call the flesh continues in corruption. It's still corrupted by sin. To illustrate this, I found this quote this week, not in, in studying for this at all, but I think it's actually applicable to Gethsemane and this point. Here's the quote. Sleep is our, our nightly declaration that we aren't God. The disciples were sleeping. They were declaring we're not God. Sleep is not inherently sinful. He gives to His beloved sleep. Sleep is a good thing, but it also shows you that your flesh is corrupt, that it needs rejuvenation, it needs rest. It can't live forever. That's your flesh. Because it is corrupted, it's weak. So what's Jesus saying to these men when He says, the Spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. These men who could not watch for Him even one hour... I think this is, this is helpful. This is what he's saying. He comes to them. He wakes them up. He says, I know and affirm that in your heart you are willing to stand with me, to defend me, to watch with me, to die with me, and only the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit could even produce that willingness but I also know your frame. I know that you are dust. And I know that your flesh by itself does not have the power to accomplish what your heart wants to accomplish. That's what he means by the Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now how is that related to the imperative and the objective? In light of a willing spirit and weak flesh, watchfulness and prayer is required. 
That's what he's saying. In other words, personal private communion with God will give your spirit what you need to accomplish what your flesh alone is not able to accomplish. You can want it all day long. You can really, truly want it and be absolutely sincere in wanting it. But you can't do it by yourself. You have to have something else. So let me try to connect all of these overarching principles that we've been seeing in this section. Jesus is the shepherd and we are the sheep. We don't grow out of our dependence upon Him. We grow into dependent. As we grow... As Christians, we grow more dependent. We need to see Him more. As we mature as Christians, we don't grow out of a fear of sin. It's not like we get to the point where sin isn't that big of a deal anymore. We grow into a fear of sin. The most holy man who ever lived sweat blood as he thought of the wrath of God against sin. We don't grow out of it. We mature into it. And that growth and that maturity that we undergo is, we call it sanctification. We're being made into the image of who? Christ, the man in Gethsemane. So what does, here's the question, what does Jesus do when out of fear and out of desperation and dependence utters His, his dependence upon God and his, his resignation to the will of God? What do we see Him doing? Praying. He gets alone, he gets by by himself, he gets away from his disciples, and he gives himself to private prayer. And then when he comes back to the disciples, he tells them to do the same thing. And I think if we compare Luke's account, I believe, with Matthew, this idea of watching and praying, this wasn't a new thing for them. He said this right when they walked in. Watch and pray. This the point. Why we're here, men, is to watch and to pray. So what do we see in Christ? Here we see a man praying that he might not enter into temptation and commanding other men to pray that they might not enter into temptation so that they would have the strength to persevere through the trial that they were about to undergo through God's power. And what do we learn from that? That even as believers, even as Christians, our flesh is corrupt with indwelling and remaining sin. It is weak. It is impotent to any spiritual good by itself. Therefore, we must pray that God's Spirit would empower our spirit so that we can not only overcome temptation, but just live as a Christian. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans 7. Verse 18, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. In other words, my spirit's willing, but my flesh is weak. I want to, but I can't by myself. To put it very simply, the doctrine, very simply, praying in the spirit is a help to men in the flesh. It's that simple. Jesus Christ was God incarnate, God in the flesh. In Gethsemane, He's a man in the flesh, suffering and depending and suffering and depending. And so He prays. He's literally doing what He expects His disciples to do and what He expects us to do. Praying in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit is just another way to say biblical prayer, Christian prayer. Praying in the Spirit. 
when he concludes his description of the full armor of God in Ephesians 6, which I believe we could probably make a good case that that's what Jesus is putting on display here in the Garden of Gethsemane, the full armor of God. When he brings that to a conclusion, Paul says, "...praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance." Keep alert with all perseverance. Watch to the end that you can pray in the Spirit. The way our Lord's saying it is just, He's just reversing it. Watch and pray in the Spirit that you may not enter into temptation. That you may be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. So that you'll be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand. Firm. You've not done all until you've prayed in the Spirit. I think it was Bunyan again who said, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can't do more than pray until you've prayed. Praying in the Spirit is how we become strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. So if we are to make any spiritual progress, overcome any sin, make, make it through any test, any temptation, any trial, we must be people who are watching and praying, and that prayer must be true prayer in the Spirit. Not just closing your eyes and mumbling words. That's not praying. So then the application is that simple. Two points. Watch and pray in the Spirit. Watching again means that we must be mentally and spiritually alert about what's happening. Peter did not learn his lesson in Gethsemane. Or maybe he did learn his lesson after Gethsemane, but not before. But in 1 Peter 1.13, Peter says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Literally, gird up the loins of your mind. You know the picture of the, the warrior with the robe? He folds it up, he tucks it into his belt, he tightens his belt so that he can run and fight in the battle. That's what he's saying. Do that with your mind. Get your mind ready for action as if you were going into a battle. Being sober-minded means that you control your mind. Don't let outside stuff control your mind. You control your mind. Think clearly. Take honest evaluation of all things at all times. That's being sober-minded. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Can you imagine Peter hearing his Savior say, Satan has requested, has demanded to sift you like wheat. And Peter says, it'll never happen to me. And then he suffers, and when he puts his pen to the paper, he says, take my word for it. The devil prowls around. Learn from somebody who learned the hard way. Be sober-minded. and Be watchful because of the devil's schemes. The sense of these commands is that rather than let our minds wander, we must always be in a state of clear thinking, sober judgment and assessment, readiness, observation, and planning. That our culture worships a God called, I just need to rest my mind. That's a, that's a God. I just need to, I just, I just can't right now. I just need to get away for a little bit. That's idolatry. When we feel like we can't cope with society in our right mind, the way 
things are in reality. Be watchful concerning things that are internal to you, your own heart, your own inclinations, your own leanings. Do you know? Do you even notice when your quiet time, your personal devotion time is on Thursday, it's not what it was on Tuesday? And I need to know why it's not like it was on Tuesday. On Thursday, do you even know? Are you soberly thinking about what's happening in your heart? You're, you're drifting. Why do I not love the Lord today like I did six months ago? What's happening? That's being sober-minded, assessing these things, being watchful concerning the desires of your heart, things that used to, they weren't desires of yours, but now they are, or maybe they drifted away for a while, but all of a sudden these inordinate passions are creeping back up in you. Why? And do you notice it? If you're not being watchful, you're not going to notice it. You're just floating down the lazy river ride of life. Things internal to you, things external to you, your family, your church. It's easy for somebody to come to the pastor and say, how's your church doing? But what if somebody came to you? Could you make a sober evaluation of what's happening in this church? What God's doing, what God's not doing. What needs to be done and what's, what's happening? Soberly evaluating your family, your church, the nation, the world, just reality. Things that are happening, things that are not happening. What's, what's something that ought to be happening in your heart? Until you're glorified in the presence of Christ, there are things that ought to be happening. Tomorrow morning, there you have some oughts. You ought to be growing. You ought to be advancing. Is it happening or is it not happening? And do you know? Are you evaluating? Are you, you sober-minded? In your family, men, do you know what's happening with your wife and her spiritual life? That's your job to watch, to be sober-minded and to guard. Wives, do you know what's happening in the, the heart and, and mind of your husband so that you can support and pray for him? Are you living in reality? Are you able to make a true assessment of reality at all? Because if you're sober-minded, you'll be able to. But if you're not sober-minded... It's all make-believe. Are you watchful concerning things that might happen today, this afternoon? What might happen this afternoon that, would, that you need to think about and plan for tomorrow, next week, next year? What are potential hazards, issues that might be dealt with, circumstances? If you've got kids that are 6, are you thinking about when they're going to be 16? If they're 16, are you thinking about when they're going to be 25? Are you thinking soberly about what that's going to require of you as a parent? Be watchful. Be sober-minded. Preparing. But it goes even further than that for us because we have to engage our minds on a Christian level. Like everything I just said is great and anybody in the world could say, well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's probably a good thing. We have to do it on a Christian level. We have to think soberly from a Christian perspective, from a biblical worldview. What does the Bible say about that? What does the Bible say should be happening, but it's not happening? So we have to evaluate our present condition, our needs, our failures, our sins, our weaknesses, potential issues, everything associated with our present station in life. We have to evaluate all of that as people filled with the Spirit of God, with the revelation of God, believing in the promises of God, realizing that we have a responsibility to live in all things according to God's revealed will. 
So, so that raises our, that should heighten our senses in being sober-minded and being watchful. We're like a soldier behind enemy lines in the dark who is careful not to breathe too hard so that he can hear every strange sound from every direction and evaluate it. What was that? He's got his eyes wide open, taking in every bit of possible light from every peripheral angle so that he notices the slightest movement. And then he's cataloging in his mind every possible scenario, noticing every possible place of cover, rehearsing every practiced maneuver that he had learned in boot camp. Now's the test. You're going over that and over that and over that in your mind just to stay alive. That's how we are. We have to do that, but spiritually we have to watch and live in reality. But secondly, we must pray in the Spirit. And to prove that these things are again connected, Peter himself puts them together just like his master before him in 1 Peter 4, 7. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The New American Standard says, For the purpose of prayer. The King James says, Watch unto pray, or unto prayer. The modern English version says, Be self-controlled, be sober-minded, so you can pray. In order to pray aright, we must be able to pray according to reality. And in order to pray according to reality, we have to be aware of what's happening around us. So we watch and we take in all of the issues of life from a biblical, sanctified perspective. And then, when we've understood our duty in them, when we've understood what we, would, what we need God to do in them, we bring all of that before the Lord in prayer. And we petition God concerning those things. The reason you can't pray for more than seven minutes is because you're not living in reality. You don't know what's happening around you. Well, it's just hard for me to think of all the things right you watch and then you pray. You don't start praying and then start watching and say, well, nothing came to my mind. When you have, when you have been watching and living in reality and then you bring all of that to God in prayer, it changes the way you pray. And we pray, as Paul said, at all times in the Spirit. What does that mean to pray in the Spirit? Now, we'll, we might come back to this more in the future, but... I want to give you just some quick bullet points what it means to pray in the Spirit. How do we know that we're praying in the Spirit? First, when we're praying in the Spirit, our prayers will be initiated by the Holy Spirit. That means He impresses upon our sanctified conscience the need to pray. So we never shrug off the urge or the opportunity to pray. Now that doesn't mean that we always wait for an urge... Sometimes you've got to start on your own. And you just got to start and you've got to wait for the Lord to come in and carry you further in prayer. But I think we can safely say that the devil and your corrupt flesh is never going to prompt you to pray. So if you feel prompted to pray, don't pass it off. Don't wait. Don't finish reading the paragraph. Just pray. Put your finger down and pray. Use that and assume that the Holy Spirit is initiating your prayer. 
Secondly, praying in the Spirit. When we are praying in the Spirit, our prayers are informed by the Holy Spirit. That is, He gives us the right understanding of prayer. He gives us the topics of prayer. He teaches us how to address those topics when we're praying. Usually through the study of Scripture, biblical prayers, we learn how we ought to bring things before God. When, we, when the Spirit informs our prayers, we pray things that He would have us to pray for. When we inform our prayers, we pray things that we would have, but they might not be according to the will of Christ. When the Spirit informs our prayers, we pray what He would have us to pray. Thirdly, when we pray in the Spirit, our prayers are sustained by the Holy Spirit. In other words, once in a season of prayer, the Spirit Himself will begin to give and continue to give more unction to pray. He will bring to your mind things that you had not thought of to pray about. He will sustain your mind to think. He will help you articulate specific petitions and requests in ways that you would not have said them to a friend. He gives you that. He sustains it. And I believe, based on what happened in Gethsemane, that He will uphold your physical constitution to continue in prayer without weariness. I believe He'll do that. I find it utterly astonishing. There are two positions I can sleep in comfortably. Laying on my back in my bed and on my knees in prayer in my office, I can fall asleep like that and sleep like a baby. And that's how I know I'm not praying in the Spirit because I believe when these men fell asleep, he said, watch and pray, assuming that the Spirit would uphold them so that they could continue in prayer. And we get weary and we get tired and our minds wonder. That's how you know you're not praying in the Spirit. You've got to wait for the Spirit to come and to carry you into prayer. And He will sustain you. Number four, our prayers when we're praying in the Spirit will be emboldened by the Holy Spirit emboldened. Again, I think it was Bunyan who said that something to the effect of no sinner in their right mind would ever come to God in prayer unless God Himself had commanded Him to come. And even then, every day, there should be this sense in us that says, I'm not really so sure I should be here. But the Spirit comes and reminds us that we, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, may come boldly, ought to come boldly. Not only may we come and ought we come, but that we should expect the God of heaven to incline His ear, hear us, and answer our prayers. We should expect that. The Spirit emboldens that when you're praying in the Spirit. And, and, and you might begin to say some things that you think, well, I mean, I, really, I probably wouldn't have said it that way earlier. But the Spirit gives that boldness to pray. Fifthly, when we're praying in the Spirit, our prayers are affected by the Holy Spirit. Not effected, affected by the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit inclines our hearts and gives us true spiritual emotions. Emotions are not sinful. They're not bad. Now, they're different for everybody, and everybody doesn't have to pray the same or emote the same. But when, the Holy, when you're praying in the Holy Spirit, He will give you vehemence regard to a particular subject. He will give you a broken heart regard, regarding sin, or regarding a lost family member, a co-worker, or a friend. The Holy Spirit will give you holy and righteous indignation of injustice. It's not bad. 
as long as the Holy Spirit is the one producing that. The Spirit will work in us to pray fervently. Number six, when we're praying in the Spirit, our prayers will be properly aimed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will direct our hearts and our minds to pray for the glory of God. Apart from the Holy Spirit in our flesh, we might pray the right words and all of the right petitions and still pray for our own glory. In the Holy Spirit, our words might be jumbled up and our petitions may not make any sense to anybody, but you can pray with God's glory in mind because He's, he's aiming that and He makes it holy. And lastly, when we're praying in the Holy Spirit, our prayers are enunciated by the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8, 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes with us, or for us with groanings too deep for words. When we don't know what to pray, the Spirit will help. When we don't know how to pray, the Spirit will help. When we can't put into words what we ought to pray, the Spirit helps you see, the Spirit of God is, is the one who helps us soberly assess everything around us and formulate our prayers with regard to all of that. And then He brings us into the presence of God and gives us the ability to utter those prayers. And it's through that communion, praying to God through the new and living way made by Christ, that the power of the Holy Spirit is given and grace is given for us to then stand up and walk and persevere through every trial and live the Christian life. It comes from, flows out of private communion with God. So do you expect a trial, a temptation at any point ever? Then you ought to watch and pray at work tomorrow. If there are situations that you know, that's going to be a temptation for me. There's going to be somebody at that part of the hallway and that part of the day, and it seems like every time we get to talk and we start gossiping about somebody. Well, if you know it, then pray, watch and pray, and practically avoid the place. At home, men, if you know that when, when you come home from work, the greatest temptation is to veg out and become self-man, so that when anybody begins to talk to you or touch you or bother you, you're snapping, snapping, snapping because you're living for yourself in that moment. If you know that's a temptation Monday through Thursday, you can probably assume it's going to be a temptation Friday. So watch and pray that you don't enter into the temptation. The same goes for private circumstances. Places and times and people and things that we do. If you know that it's going to be a temptation, watch and pray, and even avoid. To be incredibly practical, immediately practical, is it hard for you to follow a sermon for any reason at all? Any reason? Does your mind tend to wonder? If you know it, watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. For any reason. It's easy for us to say, well, you know, kids are going to be kids and kids are going to make noise and it's just distracting. Well, you're right. And disciples are going to fall asleep and men are going to lust and women are going to gossip. So you watch and you pray. 
We don't just assume, well, it's natural, so let's not do anything about it. Jesus said, watch and pray so that you don't fall asleep. We have to realize that we are helpless in ourselves. We have to realize the power is in God and, and it is available to us by His Holy Spirit. And when we realize that, we will come to Him in personal, private prayer and we will receive from Him the things that we need. Amen. That's what the Lord does in Gethsemane. That's what we have to do. Watch and pray. So let's do that. Let's pray. Well, as we come to the Lord's table, I want to read sort of a scripture collaboration from the book of Hebrews. Since then, we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifice daily for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself." now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Amen. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Son of God took on flesh and lived in the place of sinners a righteous and holy life, and then died as their substitute, bearing the wrath of God the Almighty for their sins, then was raised because His work was finally, and, and, and was finally completed, raised, and then He has now ascended into the heavens on behalf of the people of God in our place, and there stands as our substitute. He's gone in before us so that we can come after Him. The death of Christ is not just to save us from sin. It's not just to save us from hell. It's to bring us into the presence of God. And so when we come to the Lord's table and we consider that broken body and that shed blood, don't stop at, I'm glad I don't have to go to hell. I'm glad my sins are forgiven. If that's all you use Christ for, you have prostituted that man for your own purposes. Chase it further into the presence of God because that's where He has taken us. So take a moment, consider the body and the blood of Christ shed for our sin, yes, but to bring us unto God and then we'll come to the table together.